Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a special episode uh, bringing to you a podcast I am really loving, uh, and I'm here with one of its hosts, Ronnie Mola. Ronnie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ezra. So tell me about Land of the Giants Season 2. What y'all doing? Oh, we're just, you know, talking about all things Netflix. Um, this is a, a series that's about the Feng companies, so about the big major tech companies like Apple and Google. And for this season, which is Season 2, we're doing Netflix. It's slightly different than those companies, but also kind of very important in its own way. What what makes them important? Why should I care? Why should you care? Um, specifically now, uh, I guess with coronavirus and this pandemic, you have this company that was already disrupting Hollywood, that was changing the way that media and the movies and TV shows that we watch are, are made, um, how they're distributed, how you know how how they come actually to us. We used to go to stores and get videos from Blockbuster, but now they come to us over the internet. That's largely because of Netflix. Um, And during the pandemic, they're becoming even more powerful. It's sort of, this was a time when we were worried that all these competitors, all these companies that have been copying Netflix, like Disney and Apple, HBO, they're all launching their own streaming services. And now all of a sudden, we thought this was going to be bad news for Netflix. But during the pandemic, Netflix seems to have grown stronger. And that sort sort of seems largely by virtue of just a recession isn't hurting them. It's almost purpose built for them. They seem to be doing better because of um, the economic downturn and because we're all trapped in our houses watching Netflix. So there's this one way in which I think people understand that Netflix shapes the world around them, which is due to both its sort of bankroll and its centrality in streaming. It's changing the entertainment we all get. But a, a little bit more subtle is that they are this industry-leading tech firm they have far and away the most famous HR document in all of technology, this whole thing about the Netflix culture, which is is the topic of, of the first episode. And I was given that sideshow when we were launching Vox. Somebody, you know, somebody who we we're talking to about funding, like sent it to me. It is in every one of these companies that I know of. Like everybody gets sent this at some point. And on the one hand, it's a really remarkable document in terms of trying to create a high-performance culture. And on the other hand, it's also a very dystopic document in terms of, I would almost call it the culmination of decades of weakening the idea that there is any relationship between companies and their employees beyond performance. Right. They have an expression called that says, you know, we're a team, not a family. And the idea is that your your colleagues are really dispensable if um, there, there is a thing within their their culture document. It's called the the keeper test, and the idea is that at any given time, your manager is supposed to be seeing whether you are the best person for the job, and if you're not, they're supposed to be trying to find someone else. So it's a little, as someone who might work there, I, I could find it. I would find it terrifying. Yeah, and and there's this whole idea that um, if, as I understand the keeper test. The way the keeper test works is you should always be asking yourself, if somebody else came to hire this person, would I fight to keep them? And if the answer is no, you should fire them. Um, you like should get where they should be out. And similarly, and you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, it's a little bit hazily remembered, but similarly, they're, you know, they they give people a bonus for leaving. I mean, there there are things here that make sense in in the respect of it is hard to find a good match with an employer and, and, and you, you want to make sure if you don't have one, that, like that gets rectified. But on the other hand, there there is this way, and I, I think you can particularly feel it listening to this episode during coronavirus, 
where, you know, if you've been doing a good job at a place for a long time and you have an off year or you've been contributing somewhere for a long time and now it's changing and you're trying to keep up with the changes and it's a little bit hard, you would want there to be some loyalty to you too. And what is just like very striking to me about the, the Netflix culture, and I always wonder, and this is actually my question for you, how much it is truly practiced, is that it it is culturally against having that kind of loyalty. And is that true on the ground or is this just like a document that goes around and, you know, people refer to it every every so often, but it's not really how the place works, which is true for how most aspirational company value documents function. Well, first of all, when, when Peter and I were working on this, a lot of times we, we were like, well, yeah, that kind of sounds good. This certain thing like, oh, yeah, transparency and transparency and how much you were paid and just people being very clear with you, like this is what's going on in the company. That sounds very good. The idea that you could be kicked out at any time, that there's no loyalty, that, you know, Reed Hastings fired his co-founder or like he fired the person who made this culture deck you're talking about sounds super, super scary. Um, so there is this like cult-like aspect to it that is very strange. and. I think that most people there, at least the ones we talk to, do seem to really believe this. They seem to be really committed, at least to, you know, they use the language that they have there. They do think to see, seem to think that it makes their business better. Like, it's an inherent part of why Netflix is so successful. A more cynical person could say that they're just really good at acting like they think that this is really important. And that's like just what you have to do to work at the company. But it, it does seem... Like they're very convincing. So even the CEO of Netflix makes the occasional mistake. And I think we're going to hear about some of that in, in this clip. So can you introduce for us what we're about to hear? Yeah. So this is a segment of our first part of our first episode. And you're going to hear Peter Kafka, who's my co-host on this. He's kind of he's taken the lead on this. And um, this is about how kind of quite a bit earlier in Netflix's history, uh, Reed Hastings is this very tech-centric, tech-forward guy. And he realized that the future of DVDs was in streaming. You know, originally they were a DVD by mail service and then they started offering streaming for free. He has this idea that, you know what, the future is streaming, so we're going to split our company into two different sections. Uh, so if you want streaming, you're going to have to pay one price. And if you want DVDs, you're going to have to pay another price. The result was that people who like had been Netflix subscribers all of a sudden had to pay 60% more in order to get the same service they did before. And, you know, in the long view, he was right. But in the short view, he was wrong. The company did really poorly. This is an example of how they made this huge mistake. And everyone else probably would have been like, well, maybe we don't raise the prices 60% in the middle of a recession. His takeaway was that, like, we have to double down on the culture so that people can tell me when I'm wrong, so that they can have transparency, radical transparency, even if with, with the guy who founded the company. All right, so we're going to listen to this. Ronnie Mola, thank you very much, um, and I'll be back on the other side. Thanks, Ezra. All right, so here's the deal. Today, Netflix announced that it was splitting its business into two. I mean, the good news that's going to come out of this is no longer will New Coke be the worst public announcement. It's really going to be Quickster, which I'm saying is Deadster. This was Netflix's attempt to get the world to embrace streaming long before streaming was mainstream, and it failed. It's one of those experiences that no one wants to think about, that's for sure. It failed so badly that Netflix execs like Cindy Holland, who runs original programming, have tried to forget it. Let's back up. Netflix started out in the late 90s, shipping movies and TV shows on DVDs through the mail. And in 2007, Reed Hastings began letting his subscribers stream videos over the internet, too, for free. At first, this was a thing that appealed just to early adopters. But by 2011, millions of Netflix customers were doing it. 
But Hastings wanted things to move even faster. He wanted everyone to stream and he wanted to start getting out of the DVD business. We were a hybrid service with DVD and streaming together in the U.S., um, starting to do streaming alone internationally. Um, I realized that we would be better if we could split those two services so we were not dependent on DVD and that we were the best streaming company full stop. You can hear it in his voice. Hastings is a tech guy and he's a very logical dude. And like a lot of Silicon Valley logical dudes, especially those that have had some success early on like he did, Hastings assumed that if it made sense to him, you'd get it too. In his mind, this was simple. Streaming was the future, and Netflix had to make itself into a streaming company. So Hastings tried to force the issue. You'll still be able to stream movies, but if you want DVDs, you're going to have to use a whole new service. Boy, are people pissed off about that one. In 2011, Netflix announced that its basic service, which offered DVDs and unlimited streaming for 10 bucks a month, was now going to be two services. If you wanted to watch stuff on the Internet, you'd pay 8 bucks a month for that. And if you wanted to rent DVDs, you'd pay another 8 bucks a month for that, too. So you have to pay a lot more to get the same stuff you got before. That is a good way of putting it. It was a 60% price hike delivered when Americans were still climbing out of a huge recession. And it went along with a move to make a simple service way more complicated. You can imagine how that went over. No one was thrilled by the recent Netflix pricing increase. But the way in which they delivered the message was what really seems to have caused the majority of the backlash. This is one of the first mainstream internet uprisings against a big consumer company. A lot of this happened on Facebook, where Netflix customers went to complain, and sometimes they would find Reed Hastings there answering some of their complaints. He was extra hands-on back then. It's hard to remember what 2011 was like, but a lot of the internet mass behavior, social interaction stuff was just starting. And so this idea that then people would be upset on Facebook and then other people would see it and amp up the total conversation We had not witnessed many of those in society before. Netflix customers weren't the only ones who didn't like Hastings' idea. Many of his executives also had doubts, but they were scared to tell him that. Or more generously, they figured Reed Hastings is super smart, and if he thought it was right, he must be right, even if it made no sense to them. I do remember the conversations. Um, You know, the difficult thing about it is Reed had been right about almost everything. Cindy Holland is one of those executives who didn't know how to tell Hastings that splitting the business in two might be a mistake. This was really the first big example where I think there was some nervousness. Yeah, there were some doubts, but he'd just been right so many times. This wasn't terrible logic, by the way. Reed Hastings was the guy who started a video company back when everyone in the world got their videos from Blockbuster. Bad idea, right? But he won. By 2011, Netflix had more than 20 million subscribers, and Blockbuster was bankrupt. So maybe Hastings did know what he was talking about. Everyone knows the tale of the self-absorbed, arrogant CEO who doesn't listen. And there's an element of that because we had been so successful at so many things before that. But the more subtle one is that I had been so successful before that most of the executives thought, this isn't smart, or I don't think it is smart, but Reed has been right on so many things I'll bet he's right on this one, and I'm just not seeing it. But the customers saw it, and Netflix paid the price. By the end of the year, more than 700,000 people had canceled their Netflix subscription, and at one point, Netflix stock had dropped by 70%. What was it like inside the company when you rolled this out and then saw the feedback coming in, saw the stock drop? Mm-hmm. What was, what was well, it like? At first, we were uh, defensive, and we're like, we knew it was going to be hard. We weren't stupid that it was people were going to like it. Customers bailed on him, and investors hammered his stock. And Hastings doubled down. To emphasize that the future of Netflix was streaming, he announced that Netflix's DVD company was no longer going to be called Netflix anymore. 
And he decided the best way to announce that was a video. Hi, I'm Reed Hastings, CEO and co-founder of Netflix. We've been working for the past 14 years to build Netflix year by year into the best possible service we could build. We're making this video today to apologize in person, or at least on camera, for something that we did recently. This is a weird video. It features Hastings sitting outside at a patio table wearing a bright teal button-down shirt. It's also weird because he's not really apologizing. He's saying he's going ahead with this plan that everyone hates. Oh, and he's got a new name for it, too. We think that the DVD service needs its own brand so that we can advertise it. So we've named our DVD service Quickster. What the hell is a Quickster? Why is it being spelled Q-W? And why is the CEO of this tech company shooting lo-fi apology videos outside his office? This video and that name were so widely panned that even Saturday Night Live went after it. And now a message from Netflix.com. Hi, I'm Reed Hastings, CEO and co-founder of Netflix. This is Jason Sudeikis as Reed Hastings, and Fred Armisen is next to him as one of his underlings. Fake Reed Hastings, by the way, is wearing that teal shirt. We knew you loved Netflix because it was an easy-to-use website for all your movie needs. To make it better, we split it into two separate, slightly more confusing sites. <laughs> Netflix for streaming video, and Quickster, which will handle DVD rentals. Did we spell a quickster in a normal way? No, we didn't. No. <laughs> no. Q-W-I-K. Annoying, but easier. Right. Yeah. And by the way, we know it's off-putting to see the CEO of a powerful company rocking a goatee and teal shirt, but trust us. <laughs> we know what we're doing. This is a great video, by the way. It is definitely worth looking up. And Netflix got lucky. The skit never actually ran on SNL itself. It was only online. And uh, do you remember the SNL video? Uh, yes. <laughs> You're wincing. Steve Swayze handled PR for Netflix during the Quickster debacle. The thing is, Netflix moves fast on everything, and when it's the consumer benefit, everybody loves it. But when it's a mistake, it's amplified. And that's when we really started to feel the hurt. That's when people really revolted. The non-apology apology video did not work. More subscribers left, and Netflix stock sank even lower. And Reed Hastings, the super logical guy who was convinced that he was right and everyone else was wrong, finally got the message. He was left with no choice. Netflix has abandoned Quickster, its widely panned movie streaming service. Netflix says it was just too quick with its plan for Quickster. In other words, Quickster is dead. Even today, Hastings says he was wrong, but not that wrong. The big thing was we did a 60% price increase to 20 million American families in the middle of a recession. So there's no communications that's going to make that go down well. So to recap, you raise prices, you make a simple service complicated, you create a terrible name for a new product that people do not want and tell everyone who hates it that they're wrong. This was not a great run for Hastings, and he put the life of his company in danger. But Netflix survived. Eventually, subscriber numbers started ticking up again, and since that's all Wall Street really cared about, the stock went up again, too. And while the Quickster name has gone to heaven, Hastings still ended up going forward with his plan to make DVDs separate from Netflix's streaming service. Today, if you want to get Netflix to send you DVDs, you can. You go to a service called DVD.com and you sign up there and you pay another eight bucks a month. The lesson for Hastings was not that he screwed up or that he was too early pushing streaming or maybe he should have worn a different color shirt in that video. It's that lots of people around him could have told him he was going to make a mistake, but they didn't. They lost their own self-confidence. It wasn't me suppressing it. It was them overly deferential. 
because of the track record of the beating blockbuster, all these like crazily unlikely and hard things. And so afterwards, what we realized is, okay, we need to be much more active at farming for dissent. Hastings vowed to run a company where everyone everywhere could tell everyone else what they thought of them and their ideas. And specifically, Netflix came up with this idea where you could take a crazy big swing at something, but you better ask other Netflixers to troubleshoot it first. This is what Hastings and Netflix call farming for dissent. You're trying to get your coworkers to tell you what's wrong with your idea. If you tell everyone about your plan and you get their feedback and they hate it and you still want to go ahead, you can. And if it fails, you'll be okay in theory. But if you haven't farmed for dissent in advance and you also fail, you're going to have a problem. Because then they all see each other. It's just an open Google Doc. So they all see how each other feel. And then everybody has to vote in public in writing of do they think this would be wise, stupid, not stupid. And then it's up to me to write a, a summary of, okay, this is what I heard. And it might be that we're still doing X or Y, which might not be the popular choice. So no one, it's not advertised as a democracy. Let's vote it up uh, like the Senate or something. But it's everyone on record. I'm still not 100% sure that employees will ever be as candid with Hastings or their boss as they might be with people who can't lay them off and ruin their lives. So you're suggesting that it's one thing to tell me that you don't like my salad choice, another thing to go tell our CEO that you don't like the direction the company's going? Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, and Reed Hastings made one other decision after Quickster. He hid that teal shirt in the closet, and he never wore it again. And a few years later, he gathered his employees and held a ceremonial burning. Where did you burn it? Just in that same patio where the video was. That's awesome. That was from the first episode of Land of the Giants, season two, um, which I've been listening to and loving. You can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts.